As we gather around the word today, uh, a reminder that Joe Forrest and I are preaching from the Gospel of John this summer. We are already on sermon number three, and yet it feels as if we've hardly begun. The Gospel of John is, like the other Gospels, a retelling of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus' death and resurrection, but... Whereas Matthew and Mark and Luke are woven together with many common strands and often contain stories that overlap word for word, John has much to say that's unique. It is full of stories that are not in the other Gospels. And so maybe because of that uniqueness, Martin Luther says that John's gospel is the one, the fine, the true gospel, which is high praise coming from Martin Luther. And John Calvin says something similar. He says, the gospel of John is key to understanding the rest of the gospel. So, this is my invitation to you. Read the gospel of John. It's about uh, 20,000 words in total. It's shorter than most Shakespearean plays. So I promise you, you can make it through. About 40 pages in a book. Um, And it's evocative. It's short. It has familiar stories strewn throughout. There's the woman at the well, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. Those are all stories that we're missing in the sermon series because there's so many evocative stories that we had to just choose a few. So, read the Gospel of John. Plus, the Gospel of John, I think, contains enough healing stories and enough courtroom dramas for you to get your fix of ER and house and CSI and law and order for a whole month. So, join us in reading the Gospel of John. Today's story is of the courtroom variety, and Jesus is being asked to act as a judge in a very tricky case. It's not inside a courtroom. Jesus is being approached outside the courtroom area, Um, but the questions that are uh, rising from this text are, does Jesus have the authority here to be the judge? Can Jesus act with wisdom and grace? And is Jesus's life on the line too? So let us listen for God's grace in our own lives and in our world as we hear this story of Jesus writing forgiveness in the dust. They each went to their own homes and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives for the evening. And early in the morning, Jesus returned to the temple All of the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing this woman in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And in the law, Moses commands us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against Jesus. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. But they continued to question him. So Jesus stood up and replied, Whosoever has not sinned should throw the first stone. 
And bending down again, Jesus wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. They stood up and said to her, and Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Please pray with me. Holy God, meet us in the mystery of our lives and meet us in the mystery of this text. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A man named Sigurd Olson has been deemed the father of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in Minnesota. And that is exactly where I was last week. I woke up there last Saturday morning. And I spent a whole week there with some of this church's staggeringly strong, strikingly spiritual 14-year-olds. Sigurd Olson, the father of the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, said, I go into the wilderness to iron out the wrinkles in my soul. I go into the wilderness to iron out the wrinkles in my soul. And I have found his words to ring true, but it takes a few days. The wrinkles caused by the rush of the city and the push of the suburbs take time to melt away. And this year, I can almost pinpoint exactly on a map the moment when the wilderness took its toll on my soul. A moment so synchronized with the rest of my group that I bet you could hear that moment back here in Illinois. And here's why. On Tuesday afternoon last week, near the end of an 11-mile paddle, just as we were starting to look for a place to camp for the night, all three of our canoes broke out in song. Each boat was singing its own song. We were not that synchronized. Uh, and none of us were particularly in tune. But when the wrinkles begin to disappear from your soul, so to speak, tone deafness is no longer a concern. We sang indiscriminately, blanketing the lake with a wholesome joy that could not be contained. In fact, they sang and sang and sang for the rest of the week all the way until we got to the airport. Searching our memories for a song that all of us could sing, my canoe settled on He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. So we started with some of the classics. He's got the itty bitty babies in his hands. He's got the itty bitty babies. I think he knows that one. He's got the brothers and the sisters. You know these, right? And my, fav my favorite and our preschooler's favorite. He's got the puppies and the kitties in his hands. We went through all of them. But then, as if by divine guidance, when we ran out of the classic lyrics to this, we started in on making our own rendition of the song. So, he's got the lakes and the rivers in his hands. He's got the eagles and the loons in his hands. He's got the itchy mosquitoes in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. This song imagines the whole world in Jesus' hands. 
and we took impromptu turn after impromptu turn, offering up every piece of God's wild world that we could see and taste and feel. Our verses were endless. Every wrinkle in our soul settled out as we sang and sang and sang. This song that we sang gives Jesus this cosmic scope. The whole world is in Jesus' hands and it breaks it down, giving the immeasurable, infinite, boundlessness of the world a more tangible scope. The itty-bitty babies take their place on the global stage and the puppies and the kitties are given equal footing with the brothers and the sisters. All God's creatures got a place in the choir, as they say. It is a protective song, a song that brings comfort even to the youngest people of our faith, a song that is simple enough for children to understand and yet big enough to hold on to an echo of truth for those of us who are growing up beyond our childish faith. And today's story is far from childish. It is brutish, it is cruel, it is damning, and it is embarrassing. How would this woman feel being dragged from whatever dark corner of the night into the early morning public sphere, only to be brought before Jesus? Did she she already know Jesus? Had she heard that he'd be teaching in Jerusalem? Did she know that he was in town also for the harvest festival? And and then what of her lover? Why had he escaped condemnation? Had she helped him run away or was he given a pass by the religious authorities? Or maybe he was just quick enough to escape. There's so much in this story that we don't know. And we certainly were not the first ones made uncomfortable by the unanswered questions of this text. This story has long been controversial and, in fact, was edited out of many early biblical manuscripts. It is a story that didn't get a permanent home in the Gospel of John until centuries after Jesus bent down to write in the sand. Some speculate that It was left out of so many gospel renditions because it portrays such lenient punishment for adultery. The earliest Christian communities kept close tabs on each other's ethical mishaps. And the freedom that Jesus offered to this unnamed woman would have been too altruistic, some think, for the early church. What do you think? Is it too indulgent? Should Jesus have found an alternative punishment for her? The ancient sacred legal code, the Mosaic laws passed down from generation to generation, did say that if you do the crime, you do the time. And in this case, the punishment was terminal. Among the brutish biblical decrees that you can find in the book of Leviticus, both the man and the woman caught in adultery may be stoned to death, according to chapter 20. She could have been punished to the full extent of the law. As I took time to consider this week's story about a woman possibly about to be stoned to death, I couldn't help but think of this children's song. Jesus has this woman in his hands. And this time, it's not a metaphorical 
exercise in imagining Jesus on a cosmic level, this woman's life is on the line. And the legal experts and the religious leaders have literally put her life in Jesus' hands. And here, here's the twist. Here's the turn, the surprise, to me anyway. Jesus' life is also caught up in her life. Jesus' life is at risk here, just as much as this woman's life is at risk. Not just because, but possibly because of his physical proximity to her as a potentially stone-throwing crowd looks on. But also because Jesus' answer to this legal quandary could become, for him, a matter of life and death. The religious leadership really does seek to trap Jesus. And we know this as 21st century Christians. We know the end of this story. We know that in the end, the religious leadership does trap Jesus, and they do seek the death penalty for him, and they do try him for sedition, and they, and they, and they win. But this is just chapter 8. We're still at the beginning here. This is sermon number 3. Jesus isn't arrested until chapter 18. But Jesus' life is already on the line. His response in this moment will doom or deliver both of them, both him and her. Jesus' response in this moment, in this story, will doom or deliver both of them. This summer... I met a man who had a tattoo. It was a semicolon on the inside of his wrist, and it was huge in my estimation, about the size of a playing card. It was rich and inky black against his pale, freckled skin, and I recognized the symbol immediately. A semicolon is that place in a sentence where the author has a chance to stop the sentence with a period, but chooses not to, right? A semicolon is a reminder to pause and to keep going. I recognize the symbol, though, not just because it's a character on our keyboard or a punctuation mark that finds its way into our written exchange, but because the symbol, the semicolon, has become, in the last year, part of a movement called the Semicolon Project. You can look it up. It's a project dedicated to presenting hope and love for those who are struggling with mental illness and suicide and addiction and self-injury. The Semicolon Project claims your life is not over. The sentence is your life, and you do not need to choose a period when you can choose a semicolon. Without pause, when I saw this man's tattoo, I knew that this man with the inky tattoo had been marked in some way by suicide. I didn't know if his tattoo was in honor of someone he loved or it was a mark of encouragement for his own rocky journey, but I knew enough to ask about his tattoo with delicacy, ready for whatever story might come. In today's story, Jesus, too, knows the mark of the semicolon. Jesus hands out a semicolon to the woman caught in adultery. Maybe that's what he was drawing in the dust, writing in the sand, a simple punctuation mark. 
It looked as if this woman's life was over. Where the world saw a period, Jesus placed a semicolon. Jesus chose life for her and for himself. In fact, one person pointed out that even when Jesus does predict his own eminent death, and even when Jesus does go to die, Jesus is not choosing to die, but choosing to persist in love at all risk. So, where does our world need a semicolon? Where does our world need someone to risk persisting in love? It's a radical proposition, yes? In today's story, it's not just radical, but also dire, a life or death kind of act. Do we need someone to persist in love, maybe on the campaign trail? Do we need someone to persist in love at the immigration office? Do we need someone to persist in love in the newsrooms? Do we need someone to persist in love in the hallways of our schools? as classrooms open up and social pressures return? Do we need someone to persist in love in the back rooms on Wall Street or in the boardrooms of multinational corporations? Where do we need someone to persist in love? When we sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. We're watching for God in Jesus to persist in love on our behalf. When we're, when we're singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. We're watching for God in Jesus to wrap us up in the mutual love for life, to invite us into a mutual love for life, a love for neighbor, a love for enemy, a love for the vulnerable person of this world who happens across our path and in being with us makes us mutually vulnerable. In this story, I find that Jesus offers a hope that the whole world might be offered again a semicolon, that the vulnerable well-being of one might get caught up all willy-nilly in the vulnerable well-being of all. There's so much to consider here in this story. It is rich with images of Jesus bent over, writing some semblance of forgiveness, not in stone, but in the dust and dirt that will so soon vanish with the crowd. It is a story rich with wondering how the woman's life proceeded after her encounter with Jesus. Was she changed? Could she live up to the challenge to go and sin no more? And for that matter, can any of us live up to that challenge from Jesus? This is a story rich with pondering how our lives might be if Jesus were the judge on the day that we were caught or accused or condemned. It is a story rich with warmth, a story that makes me wonder and hope. In this story, I wonder if the forgiveness Jesus made known that day might be enough for us if it might be enough for us when we are the ones who need forgiveness, and if it might be enough for us when we are the ones who need to forgive, if it might be enough for us when we are the ones who would rather condemn, if it will be enough for us when we find ourselves caught up in the routine application of established law instead of the life-transforming, life-renewing, life-saving, semicolon-sized forgiveness that Jesus offers.
for now, even as we ponder, I pray that whatever Jesus wrote in the dust, the forgiveness made known there in the midst of the dusty city might be enough for us, enough for us to model and enough for us to receive. For it gives us a glimpse of the hidden truth that whether in the wilderness or in the wilds of urban life, Jesus advocates on our behalf. Whether at the kitchen table or on the, on the global stage, Jesus teaches us to write forgiveness again across the dusty road. There is, as always, so much more to ponder. But for now, as we go out into the blessings and the struggles of this week, might we seek the semicolon life? Might we seek the mutual love for life? Might we seek to allow our well-being to get caught up all willy-nilly in the vulnerable well-being of all? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.